Well, if you would please uh, open your Bibles uh, to Luke 22. We're in a new sermon series. We're going to be meditating through the Last Supper or the, the teachings and events of the upper room as we head towards Easter. And we're going to be looking this morning at some of the preparations that took place. And um, I, as you see, I, I, in speaking of preparations, I was going through my knickknacks this week. We got some, uh, found some boxes at my in-laws' house that still had our stuff in it, and it was the nostalgic stuff. And I came across this glass. This is water. Uh, it's not my normal glass, but this glass. I, I got from my ring dance, um, uh, which if you are part of a service academy, um, the very end of your junior year, you get your class ring, you get your ring, and it's a big deal. It's a very, very big deal. So it's not like a high school ring, though maybe that's a big deal. I mean, it is a, it's a huge deal, and there's a huge ball and tuxedos, and it's this big Deal. I, I don't know. I can't. I can't think of another word. It's a big. It's just huge. And at my ring dance is the day that I got engaged to my wife. So she got a ring when I got a ring. <laughs> and that was really special. And it had me thinking, you know, because here I'm looking at his glass and I'm reminiscing. And in my, I had my old cadet hat, and then it's a picture of my, you know, my girlfriend back then. And you know, so I'm showing it to some of the kids, and we're thinking back about, or I'm thinking back about all that. And I thought of all the preparations that a person makes when they're going to propose to their prospective fiance. You know, really, ladies, that's as creative as we ever get. <laughs> is that moment? Like, if you're sitting in your marriage, going, I just wish my husband would be like be romantic and creative like he was when he proposed, it's not ever going to happen. <laughs> it isn't. I mean, even, even, boring, even boring guys, guys that are just boring, they get up for that event. And I had all of these details and preparations planned. It was going to be the greatest thing. It, oh, everything was just right. It was going to be by this reflecting pool and, and everything. And as it turned out, there was, a, there was a charter bus parked right on the spot. <laughs> And it was raining, and she was complaining about her, the dye washing out of her shoes and her uncomfortable dress. And it didn't happen the way I had planned, but you make all of these preparations, which I will say, in the defense of men, this is typically why we don't have a lot of energy to help with the wedding, is because we are spent. <laughs> you know, I, it's difficult. It's a lot of hard work, and we would appreciate just getting a little bit of slack. Uh, no, but how much more, right? How much more preparation goes into a wedding than into the, the proposal? I mean, the proposal you're worried about, you know, where you're going to kneel and kind of, you know, on what Megatron and what stadium it's going to come out of maybe. But, but in the wedding, you're worried about the flowers and the clothes and the invite list. And do you do a unity candle? Do you do the Eucharist? Do you do... Do you do unity sand? Is it who do it gives this woman to be married to this man? Is it her mother and I, or is it her father? Or, or is, is the family dynamic so bizarre that that itself is like the most nerve-wracking part of the whole wedding? All of these preparations that come into to the wedding, they come in because the wedding is saying something about the marriage. And you, as the prospective bride or groom, you want that wedding to say something true about what you envision your marriage to be like. When I counsel couples towards marriage, I say, look, we're not counseling towards the wedding. 
or counseling towards the marriage because the closer the wedding gets, you become wedding-centric, right? And we say, look, we're trying to counsel to the life on the other side of the wedding, but we don't want to diminish the wedding because the wedding, we're trying to get it to say true and good and emblematic things about what we hope our marriage will be like. We set the stage, and it's those times in our life when we want things to be just right is when it's so important. We want, it to, we want, we want to set the conditions so that we can control the, what is ultimately being said out of that event. And that's what we're going to see here this morning in the Scriptures as the Lord prepares for the Last Supper here in the 22nd chapter. I just, this morning, I just want us to meditate on the intentionality of our Lord as he approaches the final days of his life and to see that he really is trying to say something big. So let's read. We're going to read the first six verses, um, which is not our focus passage, but I think helps set the stage. This is what the scriptures say in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 22, excuse me, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. I want to stop there. And what I want to ask you to do is to put on your spiritual glasses. I don't want you to kind of think of this passage with uh, the traditional eyes. I don't want you to try to envision the face of the priests or the scenario or any of that. I want you to try to just imagine the spiritual current that's happening right now. If you can kind of step into the other world and just try to envision the weight of spirituality, of spiritual warfare that's taking place. Because what you have in these six verses, what Luke gives you is all of the forces of darkness that have, been sh- that have shown up in the book thus far are converging at last for this climax of the death of Christ. You have the priests that have converged with the teachers and the scribes. And then you have the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. And you even have Satan that shows up. All of them are coming together. There's this crescendo of evil that's occurring. Finally, at last, they are, this is, they're all in cooperation for the destruction of the Christ. I mean, Satan himself shows up here. I mean, this is not... A a synonym that Luke uses for evil or sin. Luke knows the word for evil and he knows the word for sin. And this is not a demon. All through the Gospel of Luke, when a demon shows up, you know what Luke says? A demon entered. He doesn't say Satan. This is Satan. I just want you to appreciate as, I mean, this is the beginning of the last chapter of the life of Christ and it opens with. Luke telling us just how, how much spiritual weight, the bow wave against the Christ at this point. I amused myself, not that I'm amused by it, but I wonder, why, why did Satan have to enter Judas? Right. And I don't know. Part of me wonders if he wanted to make sure it worked. Like, this is a job 
for upper management. You know, like this is not something you want to relegate to wormwood or screw tape or something like that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm actually more attracted to the idea that Satan longs to do this. You know, you remember in the temptation of Christ when he's in the desert? At the end of that, it says uh, Satan withdrew and waited for a more opportune time. And I feel, my gut feel in Scripture is, this is going to be Satan's finest hour. And he wants to be as close to it as he can. The, the details of this passage is not our focus this morning. I just want to set the stage so you see how thick evil is at work at this time in the life of Christ. And here's the response of God. It says in 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city... A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Now I've chosen this passage this morning. Uh, because I think it is emblematic of this, of this recurring theme that will show up uh, towards the end of Christ, of his careful preparation. This sense that when we, re- when we read from, from essentially here on, you get an unmistakable sense that Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. There's a, there's a sense, it's at this meal, this is, I think, this kind of, the premonition, the providential mind of Christ when he knows the circumstances, going to the town and here's the circumstances. That, that shows up again and again in this last supper. The, the knowledge that Judas will betray him. The knowledge that they'll dip their hands in the cup together. The, 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 whole, the whole awareness of that. The knowledge that Peter will deny him. Three times, in fact, before the rooster crows. Those details. that th- This kind of commences this final chapter in the story where we're given us a great sense of clarity about the mind of Christ in the world around him. Up till this point, and maybe if you're new to the word or the story of Christ, this may not sound very unusual to you, but it is actually very unusual in the story of Christ's life. Most often, Jesus, when we read the Gospels, we do not see a Christ who is telling you what's about to happen. He's not, he does not behave the psychic. That's not the role he plays throughout the life and ministry of Christ. Most often what happens is circumstances are brought into the life of Christ and he deals with whatever shows up. That's, that's how the ministry of Christ is described to us in the Word. All through the Word, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in the Word, Jesus is living his life, going from town to town, and people bring tests and challenges and opportunities to him for him to reveal the love of God and the truthfulness of who he is. That's how it happens. So he is, he is pushed into the desert by the Spirit, and Satan is the one who for 40 days sets the stage. Not Christ. 
Satan is the one who dictates the variables on, on how things are going to be happening. Then when he's in his ministry, the same thing happens. He's, he's teaching in a room, and someone tears open a hole in the ceiling and lowers down a paralytic. That problem is brought to the feet of Jesus, and Jesus deals with it. He teaches his forgiveness and his power to forgive through that. And there's times when there's people, right, he's asleep, and his disciples wake him amidst a storm, fearful for their lives. Those situations are brought to him, and he displays the glory of God through them, but he's not setting the stage. Or at least we as the reader are never given the inclination that he's setting the stage. People bring demonically possessed people, and he exercises the demons. People bring him questions, and he responds with parables. People touch the hem of his garment when he doesn't even see in a crowd of people, and he stops and he says, something has just happened. Throughout his ministry, he has received the world on their terms. So far. So far, he receives the world on their terms. He receives the world the way the world wants to come to him. You know, I can actually think of only one other occasion before this moment where Jesus sets the conditions. Maybe there's more, but I can only think of one. And it's, a, it's just a few chapters earlier. It's the 19th chapter. It's Palm Sunday. He's about to ride in this triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And he says this. In the 30th verse, he says, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. That's the only other occasion in the, minist- in the life and ministry of Christ that I can find that he, like, verbally reaches out in front of him and tells people how it will be other than throughout his ministry, he's cast the premonition of his death. So the, the general looking forward to his death has always been part of his ministry. But as, as far as these details, there's only one other time that I can find it. And it is, by the way, the same week. It is the final week of his life. Why? Why does now Christ see the need or cause to begin to clearly set the stage so that everybody knows that he knows. That's what I want us to look at. And, and there will be more opportunities than just chapter 22 to appreciate this throughout the Last Supper. I'm using this as, as our opportunity to think about it. But the first reason that I think this happened, there's, there's two reasons I, I think this is really taking place. The first one is, I believe that God wants to demonstrate his sovereignty over the last life, the last week of Christ. I, want, I think that God wants you to know that he did not relinquish his sovereignty in order for the Christ to be crucified. In other words, I, want, I think God wants to demonstrate that nobody, and I mean nobody, gets credit for crucifying Christ. Because God was in control. I, I think that's the, the first reason that we're, we're allowed to see this. That none of these circumstances, not even the small circumstances, is Satan allowed to take any kind of credit for. There's, there's no chance for the enemy to say, well, we almost had him. Because it was in the mind and hand of God the whole time. 
There's no opportunity for the church to just assume that Jesus Christ behaved admirably in a set of circumstances that just came to his way. This is not like the paralytic being lowered to the ceiling. This is not just an occasion where Christ found himself in where he behaved admirably. We're not allowed to think that because we're kind of told and described the whole way. It's it's as though Jesus knows, I'm going to walk into this room and I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to go to this garden and they're going to show up. And even in the garden, he rises and says, okay, it's time, let's go. And he goes and he meets those people who were coming to arrest him. I believe God wants to demonstrate his sovereignty in all of this. In the upper room, he speaks about his death. In the upper room, he speaks about his betrayal. In the upper room, he speaks about his denial. In the upper room, he speaks about his coming rejection. All of that is happening on the evening before his betrayal and his denial and his crucifixion and his rejection. I believe the Lord does this so that we know that Judas's betrayal of Christ is actually playing into the hand of God. I believe that Jesus does this so that we know that all of Satan's machinations and plotting and scheming for the demise of God is ultimately the demise of Satan that is happening. Just to appreciate this for a moment, I imagine, imagine the same events took place, but that we were none the wiser for them. What I mean to say is, is imagine a narrative in Scripture. Imagine a fifth gospel a fifth faithful gospel where the gospel writer did not tell you that Jesus knew about his betrayer, that the gospel, t- the gospel writer did not tell you that Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, that the gospel writers did not tell you that Jesus had kind of a bold understanding of how everything would play out. Imagine that gospel writer just faithfully relaying the details to you as they kind of happened without showing you the clarity and foreknowledge of, of the Christ. I would feel like a very different gospel. It would feel as though it was an epic failure even. All the way, we would be none the wiser all the way to the resurrection. I believe the Lord wants us to know through his written word that all of this is part of his plan. And that leads to the second idea, which which. I want us to spend some time on, which is not only was it part of his plan, but it is the central purpose of the life of Christ. And I, and I should say, I, I want to stop and just... So every time Easter rolls around, I am encountered, uh, I am reminded of this reality of I, there's really nothing new that you're going to hear for the next five weeks. Um, there are times, we talk about the cross every Sunday. You, there are times when the church doesn't need to learn something new. It just needs to remember something very old. And that's what we're doing. We are reminding ourselves that the cross was not a mistake. And we are reminding ourselves that, in fact, the cross was the purpose. The cross was the central purpose. The intentionality that Christ shows in making these preparations and, and, and almost arranging his betrayal in uh, the premonition of his denial, all of that, all of that gives us this, this mood in the word that something very important is happening. In fact, notice, if you notice as you read, and I hope you would take time this, this month towards Easter to take time to read the story yourself, how the word slows down 
when we get to the last week of Christ, the last three days of Christ. It's as though you go through the ministry, you know, he's born, and then you fast forward the tape till his baptism. This should help you appreciate what's important in the story. And then he goes, ministry, 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 this town, that town, this town, that town, this town, that town. Then he gets to the triumphal entry of Jerusalem, and it goes down to half speed. And now it's going day by day. This day he went in, and he went out. And that day he went in, and he said this, and he went out. And that day he goes in. And then it gets to this very moment, and the tape slows way down. Now it's hour by hour. And pretty soon by the very end, it's heartbeat by heartbeat. The word just slows down so much that you cannot deny that this is the reason that the entire scriptures were given to us. This is the whole point of the word of God and the intentionality and the purposefulness that our Lord shows in this, making arrangements. How important must this last supper be for the Lord himself to make these arrangements for it? To slow us down and say, you're going to go and you're going to find a man carrying water and he's going to lead you to a house and you say to the owner, and we'll all be, go spend the day making preparations. I mean, next Sunday, he's going to turn to his disciples and he has said, I have longed, I have deeply desired to share this meal with you. What does that mean? This is such a special moment. It's the church, so we're, we're not going to deny the cross. We obviously, as the church, believe it's the cross, but we can accidentally mistake the importance I'm not saying the feeding of the 5,000 is not important. I'm not saying the healing of the paralytic is not important or the healing of the blind or the raising of Lazarus or the caring for the widow's child. I'm not saying that any of that is not important. I'm saying that the word of God says this is most important. But what can happen in our life, right? This is when Jesus says, stop, I'm going to set the stage. I'm going to make the preparations. I'm going to arrange things the way I want them so that you know what's important. That's what he's doing here in in this part of the word and throughout this Last Supper. He's choosing to say what he wants to say, how he wants to say it, and and, and to take the pieces and and to make his own arrangements. He's making the arrangements for his funeral is what he's doing here. And while I don't think people in the church would ever deny the cross. I don't think that's the, necessarily the gospel that needs to be preached to us. I think we can make this, this mistake unwittingly is we can look to the different Christ. We can take a different element of the ministry of Christ and put it in the center of the stage. So here, as the word slows down, and as the intentionality of Christ ramps up, and as evil is kind of pounding against him like water against the shore, as all of this is happening right now, it's God's way of saying, I'm taking the cross and I'm putting it in the center of the stage. I want you to, I want you to understand me through the cross. But what we can do is we can take other things about Christ. We leave the cross on the stage, but I think we can take other elements of the life of Christ and put them there. So we can, we can put the power of Christ there. Some of you are very truth-oriented, and so you can put the teachings of Christ there, all of the parables and, and the truth, right? Some of us love the Sermon on the Mount because of what all the profundity of God that's happening there. and It's all important, but it is not most important. And we can take the blessings of Christ and put it there, and we can take our favorite passage and put it there. 
And we can take all of these things, and so pretty soon the stage is cluttered with wonderful and marvelous things of God, and somewhere on the stage is the cross. And this is the Lord's way of saying this. Wipe the stage clean. It is the cross. I'm here to say, like, if you do not know the Christ of the crucifixion, no matter how much you like him, you do not know him. You cannot know him but through the cross. You can be a fan of him. You can be interested in him. You can know a lot about him. But you do not know Christ unless you know him through the cross. And in fact, this intentionality did not begin on Thursday, the Thursday before his crucifixion. It's, it's been, the Lord has been pointing to this moment his whole life. In fact, actually, the whole Bible has been pointing to this. You realize it's the Passover? This is the Passover. Let me just turn with me. We'll end this way. Turn to Exodus 8. It's like page 45 if you're using one of the... I just want you to see how intentional our Lord has been for this very moment. I want you to appreciate... The fact that the cross is not something that Jesus stumbled on. This is not something the world brought to him. This is, in fact, the purpose for which he came to the world. And that Jesus Christ, the whole time, has desired that the story of the cross would be the story of the church, would be the story of the gospel, would be the entryway for each person to understand who Jesus is. Look in, we'll start, uh, 7, Exodus 7. We won't read the whole book. You're safe. I just want you to look at titles. Hopefully you have titles. So in seven, this is essentially what the Lord says to Moses. So just take Moses and substitute Jesus. All right? Moses, the Lord says to Moses, I'm sending you to my people, and you're going to rescue them from slavery. And I'm going to be your power. Right? I'm going to give you my spirit. It's essentially what the Lord says, don't worry. And so Moses comes and he proclaims freedom for the people, freedom for the captives against the, the king of this world, against Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I won't let my people go. And so you get, you get this rhythm, this fast rhythm of the ministry of Moses for the people. You have this, the Aaron's staff becomes a snake. And then the plague of blood. And then in chapter 8, the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats. And it just goes one after the other. And then when you read the story, you get this rhythm in Exodus. It's, it's let my people go. And the Pharaoh says no. And then Moses says, he raises his staff or he does something and a plague comes. And then Pharaoh responds and then Moses re-responds. And then Pharaoh changes his mind and says no. And that rhythm goes, that let my people go, then judgment. And then kind of conflict with another no. And it, it crescendos. The whole thing is crescendoing the whole time that evil was getting more and more evil and more and more hard and more and more dark. And there's this rhythm of of God, the ministry of of Moses on behalf of God through it. And so you get all these different plagues, the plagues of frogs, and then the plague of gnats, and then the plague of flies in chapter 9, the plague of livestock, and the plague of bulls, and the plague of hail, and the plague of locusts, and then the plague of darkness. And then you get to the 11th chapter, and the word slows down. It's almost like Jesus, God speaks in a whisper and he says, okay, Moses, this is the last one and I am going to proclaim my glory through this. I will utterly shut the mouth of the enemy. And then he gets intentional and he sets the stage. He says, Moses, this is how it needs to be. 
All of the Israelites need to dress a certain way. All of the Israelites need to make a certain meal. This is very careful because everything that you're about to do is going to have eternal meaning in the story of my redemption. So you need to kill the animal this way, and you need to eat the animal this way, and then you need to, to take this. And he tells Moses in the word, in the 11th chapter, he tells Moses this, and then Moses goes and tells Pharaoh this, that Pharaoh, this is the last time you see me. Because when you wake up, you are going to send me out as free man. And then he goes to the priests and the leaders of, the, of, of, of Israel, not the priests, but the leaders of Israel, and he says to them, this is what you need to do, and he repeats it. You need to dress this certain way. You need to eat the animal this certain way. You need to do all of these certain particular things because the whole thing, God, because God is setting the stage to tell his story about who he is and what's important. You're going to put the blood of the lamb on the door, and when you do that, when God comes to judge, he will pass over God has been setting the stage for the cross since the Exodus. The Passover. Christ is playing, Christ is simply finally now stepping onto the Passover stage that was set 1,500 years before his birth so that he might at last be the blood on our door. And, and I'm here to say this morning, you can, you can worship all different dimensions of Jesus Christ, but if you do not know him through the cross, you do not know him. You have to wrestle with the notion that Jesus Christ shed his blood on a cross so that you might not die, but, that ha- but have eternal life. You have, to, you have to enter that. You cannot worship Jesus if you do not accept that. It's my prayer this morning. That as the church, we remember a very ancient thing, that the purpose of our Christ was to come and save us through the cross. Amen. Will you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do recognize that. We say it. We say it as a body to you, that you were crucified for our sins, that you were resurrected on the third day, that you sit at the right hand of the Father, that you will return one day to judge all the living and the dead that you alone are the worthy lamb, Lord, that no one else, that God can look to no other person in heaven or on earth or under the earth who is righteous and holy but you. We say that. Lord, and we confess to you that we are not holy, that in each one of us there's something wrong. In fact, in every part of us there's something wrong. There's something wrong about everything in us. We are prone to sin. We are prone to rebel. On our best days we make mistakes that there is no way ever that we can be exactly as you made Adam on the sixth day. And so, Lord, we are in need that you have said, you have said from the beginning that on the day that we sin, we shall surely die. And you say all through your word that the wages of sin is death, Lord. The intentionality of you painting this picture for us is all over the scriptures. The the institution of your sacrifices remind us that some blood must be shed so that there might be hope, Lord. We know that there has to be hope only in the blood of the Lamb, Lord. And so we say, we proclaim this morning that that is through the blood of Jesus Christ, that through the blood of Christ, all men and women born have hope 
for salvation, Lord. And we pray, we pray not just for those here who do not know, but for those across the earth that do not know, Lord, that they might bow a knee and worship you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we confess this morning that not enough people on this planet worship you. You are more worthy of more worship. Lord, we lift up the nations that they would know you and worship you. We lift up our neighborhoods and this city that we would know you and worship you, Lord. And that we might do it through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Ah, It feels good to be home. Will you stand, please?